Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worship at Fusion. We're so glad that you're joining us here in this space as well as connecting with us online. Again, welcome. And now hear the word of the Lord from the Psalms. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. I invite you to stand and worship with us. Higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave. Constant in the trial and the change, one thing remains, one thing remains, your love, your love never fails, never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me satisfies my soul and I never ever have to be afraid this one thing remains your love never fails it never gives up it never runs out on me your love never fails it never gives up it never runs out on me your love never fails it never gives up it never runs out on me fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up it never runs out on me your
for the way that you love us how you love us thank you for the way you have made us we were created for your pleasure for your presence for the glory of your name thank you for the way that you love us jesus faithful king lord with grateful hearts we sing how great is the love how great is the love of our savior the weight of the cross the curse of our shame you carried it all and rose from the grave how great is the love how great is the love of our Savior, of our Savior. Thank you for your grace that has saved us. You forgave us. Thank you for the way you have freed us. We've been ransomed, we've been rescued, we've been purchased with the price of your own life. Thank you for the way that you love us. Oh, Jesus, faithful King, Lord, with grateful hearts we sing. How great is the love, how great is the love of our Savior. The weight of the cross, the curse of our shame, you carried it all and you rose from the grave. How great is the love, how great is the love of our Savior. us how you love us thank you for the way that you love us how you love us thank you for the way that you love us how you love us Jesus thank you for the shame you carried it all 
and rose from the grave. How great is the love, how great is the love of our Savior, of our Savior, of our Savior, of our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. morning again, church. Great to be worshiping with all of you. Um, at this time, the kids um, through third grade are dismissed for worship downstairs if they'd like to go, and Miss April is in, oh, through fifth grade, through fifth grade today can go down, and Miss April is in the doorway over there if you need help finding your classes. But feel free to head out at this time. Um, one quick announcement before we go to prayer, actually a couple things. One is an announcement I was asked to make about Feed My Starving Children. The sign-ups are filling up fast. Um, the dates for that are March 11 and 12. There are still some time slots available. If you want to volunteer for that, you can call the office or look on the website. There is a link to help you do that. Um, and the other thing I just want to say, um, there are a lot of pastoral concerns that I'll be praying about today about the Fusion community. Um, I'm not going to be using last names, so if you have questions about who someone might be that has a specific need, please see Pastor JB, or you can ask me, or you can call church about that as well. Will you pray with me now, using the words of Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We remain confident of this. We will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And as we wait for your return, Lord, we know that you are with us and you are in us. And that in you we can have the confidence to live out our faith each day as we trust you. Teach us to hold more tightly to you and to let go of what we can't control. Encourage us to be more like you to the world around us because our world is full of hurts that only you can help. May we all be reflections of you that bring light to our world until you return. God, we praise you for the beauty of the winter, for the freshness of the snow, for the warmth of our homes, for your creativity in planning all that we see around us. We praise you for choosing us, for bringing us into your family and into this community. We pray for our staff. We ask you would guide them daily in what's best for our community on campus and how we can best serve this world around us to further your kingdom for you. We thank you for being a constant source of security and stability in such a fast-changing world. We are grateful that you love us and that you see us and you care what goes on in our lives, big and small. God, we praise you this morning um, that John and Jane welcomed a new granddaughter and that all is well uh, with Molly and Doug and their kids. We praise you for Leah and Tom's new baby girl, and we just pray that you will help their family as well adjust to being a family of four. And our great healer, we lift up members of our community to you who have significant needs right now. We pray for continued healing for Sandy as she recovers from COVID in Florida. Give her strength, restore her fully. We pray for Jeannie and Kelly as they deal with ongoing medical issues. 
We praise you that Kelly is in remission. And God, we pray that Jeannie will find relief from pain. We ask boldly for you to heal them both fully and give them peace and grace for each day. We lift up Judy to you and ask for quick healing of her Achilles injury. We pray for Ruth and Larry as Ruth recovers from her knee replacement. Please surround Carla and her family as her dad Tom enters hospice care. We pray for Mark who is dealing with congestive heart failure and for his wife Brenda and their boys as they adjust to Mark entering hospice care as well following a fall and some subsequent injuries from that. God, it's been a long road and um, we just pray that you will surround them in this moment and in the coming days. We lift up Shelley and others uh, suffering, suffering from a recent loss of a loved one. God, there are so many needs that we don't even know about, but you do. We just ask for your presence and your peace and only the peace that you can provide. God, we are a family. We are your family. And as a family, we lift these prayers to you as one voice. May our praises and petitions be sweet aroma to you. We praise you for how you are moving already in these situations, in our community and in our world. We love you, we need you, we wait for you. May your spirit guide us. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Joan. And thank you. Well, let me, I always say good morning, so good morning. Good morning, and uh, thank you all. It is, it is truly good to, uh, to be back in person after a week away. Uh, we are grateful for restoration of health from what seemed like a minimal illness in our house. Just the little man uh, was tested positive, but uh, we are, obviously, we're as a family just trying to be gracious and considerate uh, to those we love in all this, and so thank you for doing the same. I, you know, as Joan just shared all of those prayer requests, um, I think sometimes we underestimate um, what a simple reach out actually means. And so if God kind of just places someone on your heart this week, um, follow that prompting and send a text, make a call, shoot an email. Even those little points of contact uh, just mean so much. So just an encouragement. And so thank you, Joan, for reminding us of that. Also, thank you to Pastor Bill, Pastor Sarah, who stepped in last week in my absence. Uh, grateful to be part of uh, such a beautiful community and uh, leadership team. On a lighter note, I, I heard a rumor that there's a game going on this afternoon or this evening, right? Um, just out of curiosity, anyone, anyone going for the uh, Cincinnati team? Anyone rooting for the Cincinnati team? Anyone, anyone rooting for uh, Matt Staff? I mean, um, L.A. Rams, yeah? Anyone else just still upset because their team's not there? Yeah, that's me. That's me right there. Hey, yeah, this morning we continue to, uh, to our series, continuing our series of messages uh, through the parables of Jesus, a series we've been calling The Scandal of Grace. Uh, it's been a fun journey. I, I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed just digging deeper into the parables, rediscovering the depth to which the parables uh, really call us to question a lot of the un, uh, assumptions and understandings that we have in this world because Jesus, right, is declaring the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is breaking into the world through Jesus and in Jesus and in his message and in, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom like turns over so many of those assumptions and ways we think the world works. Last week, we studied probably the most well-known of all the parables, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? 
I think this week is, is kind of a close second. Uh, we're going to be studying the parable of the prodigal son, as it has been traditionally called. Uh, and many of us, I think, we, we enter into this parable, we're going to hear this story, and it's going to be familiar, and we have a general idea of what the parable is, is about. And, and again, I think probably a lot of those assumptions are correct. But my hope this morning, again, is to just kind of pull back some additional layers uh, to discover some additional, maybe deeper meanings found within this parable about a father and, and actually two sons, not just one. But anyway, let's, let's jump in. And again, we want to understand the context. This parable is found in Luke 15. Luke 15 is part of like about these, about 10 chapters where, where Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, Jerusalem where he would be crucified and then uh, rise from the dead. Uh, In Luke 9 through 19, Jesus and his disciples are journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem, and it's in these 10 chapters that most of the parables in Luke's gospel are found, but there's all these teachings of Jesus as well. The parable of the prodigal son is in Luke 15, uh, which opens up uh, with, with this Uh, exchange between these religious elites who are grumbling about the company Jesus has been keeping. And in Luke 15, there's three parables uh, that are kind of like one big parable. And so as we enter into God's word, I'd invite you to stand as we uh, honor God as he speaks to us, if you're willing and able. We're going to start with Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, which kind of lay out the context. Then we're going to skip over two parables, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and then jump right into the parable of the lost son. And so let's hear the word of the Lord, Luke 15, starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, grumbled, complained, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jumping ahead to verse 11. Jesus continued after these first two parables. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, that is the father, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country and who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a, finger, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable that you spoke 2,000 years ago that Luke recorded in his account of your life. And Lord, a story, a parable that by the Holy Spirit continues to speak truth that, that draws us in, that convicts and challenges and comforts. And God, we pray that you would do that work in our hearts and our lives as your people this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of a confession to make. I have a problem. And you're thinking, well, duh. We, we knew that already. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you the specific problem that I have. Uh, I have a problem of misplacing things. Does anyone else have this problem? Maybe you're married to this problem, right? Right? We all love each other, right? Uh, I, I have a tendency to, to leave different items around the house or around church. Uh, a big one is, is my coffee cup or water bottle. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, Yvonne will tell you this. At the previous church, they'll tell you that I just left my coffee cup or, or water bottle all over the place. And, uh, and, and here's a question. When, when I lose something, can you guess where is the first place I check? Any guesses? Exactly, you just got it. With Yvonne, my wife, before, before I look anywhere, I ask Yvonne. Because you know what? To be honest, that's just going to save me a couple steps because she always seems to know where things are. And, and she's frustrated by that. She's like, did you even look? And I'm like, well, no, it was just easier just to ask you, right? Anyway, any, anyone, anyone, yeah. 
Now, usually, the truth is, when I lose something, it's, it's something inanimate like a, a water bottle or keys or remote or wallet. But a few times in my life, I, I've lost something that had a little deeper meaning. Uh, one time, our dog ran away, like three days after we got him, rescued him, and I was like in tears, because um, I think I was afraid of Yvonne more. Anyway, and I was really sad about all the money we just spent. No, I love my dog, Stryker. He's still with us. But another time, it was Emmy. And, and we were at church, so it was like a safe place, right? Uh, but, but that's like a whole different level of concern. Uh, my experience when we, we couldn't find Emmy at church was, you know, looking around church, the first thing you're experiencing is just frustration and anger. Like, you know, where is she? Why doesn't she stay where she's supposed to be? And you're kind of frustrated by that. But then as time kept going on, suddenly that frustration turned to kind of this panic uh, that slowly began to increase. Like, like, like where is she? Uh, that turned into my mind starting to race toward possibilities, probably improbabilities, um, and worst case scenarios, and, I, and I'm, all of a sudden now I'm looking out in the yard, like did she actually go to the raspberry patch or go back to the house because we lived on the church property. Other people began to join in the search, and then, you know, I don't know how much time, it probably wasn't as much time as we thought, but we ended up finding her. There, our little three or four-year-old daughter was in a dark classroom, playing by herself, quietly, in a corner. Now, I promise you, that is the only time in her entire life she's played quietly by herself, but she scared us to death, right? But suddenly, the stakes are higher, and uh, it got more serious. Luke 15 is, is a series of three parables that kind of share this theme in common. There is something that is lost that is then found. Now, before we get to the parable of the lost son, what I want to do is just step into the context of the first two verses, but then these other two parables, just briefly, that Jesus tells that kind of prepare the way for us to talk and to think about the parable of the lost son. Let's look at the context of Luke 15. The, the, the chapter opens this way. Let me read it again. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, grumbled, complained, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, again, we've been talking throughout this series that the, most of Jesus' parables are not just told out of the blue. Most of the parables are told within the broader context of Jesus' ministry. All of them are. But all the other one, many of the other ones are told coming out of some specific context in the narrative itself, right? And this is the context in Luke 15. What we have in these two verses is a scene that sets the scene for the parable. You have some religious elites who are upset with the company Jesus keeps. Now, this is, a, this is something that is, is common in the Gospels and is familiar to us, but we have in here, these two verses, we have two groups of people that Luke is drawing our attention to, two categories of people, if you will. You have the tax collectors and sinners who we're told are all gathering around Jesus, compelled and wanting to listen to what he's teaching. And then you have these religious elites, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who find it appropriate on Jesus' part to allow these people in his same company. So two groups of people. You have tax collectors who, a little bit of context, you've probably heard this before, but they're corrupt, right? These are collaborators of Rome. They are, they are working for Rome to 
bleed the people of their money, uh, taxing them at exorbitant rates in order to line their own pockets. These were despised people in the ancient world. And not only that, but it's tax collectors and sinners. And this is kind of just this catch-all that, that just catches all of the people who are despised and unclean and unrighteous and sinners. Uh, so this group represents the unrighteous, the corrupt, the despised, the shameful in that first century context. And then, Luke tell, and then Luke contrasts this with another group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now again, we're, we're so used to reading uh, these categories in, in, through the lens of the Gospels, and oftentimes Jesus is kind of coming against the Pharisees and teachers of the law, so we kind of bring that with us. But in the first century, they didn't have that same context. Uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these were the religious elite. They were the ones who understood and interpreted and followed the law. They were respected. They were honored in society. They were seen as the righteous, the respected, the admired. But what we see in here in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, they're upset because Jesus should not be associating with unrighteous people like the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus responds to this two-verse context by telling these three parables. The first two we skipped over. Those are the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Two parables, all three parables found in Luke 15 are the same in many ways. If something that was lost, right, for the, the sheep, there's a hundred sheep, one of the sheep goes off, is lost, the shepherd leaves the sheep, finds the sheep, when the sheep is found, he brings it back and throws a party. A couple verses later, the lost coin, there's a woman who has ten coins, she loses one of those coins in her house, she searches diligently until she finds that one coin, when she finds it, she invites the neighbors over and throws a party, and we see a similar pattern in the parable of the lost son, the parable we just read, but there's also some differences now, we're not going to get into those quite yet. Just hold on to that. We'll circle back to this a little later. But after these two parables, Jesus then tells the parable of the lost son, or how we typically call it, the prodigal son. And Jesus opens with this detail, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Those are the, the basics that you need to know. And then the parable is, is split into kind of two primary movements or acts. There is the movement with the younger son, and then it shifts the focus to this exchange with the father and the older son. And let's just talk about each of those this morning for, for the time that we have. The younger son, let's begin there. This first movement, this first act is pretty straightforward. We're, we're familiar with this parable. Many of us are, right? And we just read it. Uh, we, you have this, this punk youngest brother, right? Those youngest children, am I right? No? I'm just kidding. We love all of our, yeah. The youngest, right? The spoiled youngest. Just kidding. Uh, anyway, the, the youngest son, this son blows it, right? And it, it's, all, it's all shameful. And the son blows it in the most highly public kind of ways, right? He is representative. Uh, when we draw back to Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, he is representative of the tax collectors and the sinners, those that Jesus kept company with. He was an unrighteous son, if you will. He wanted the father's things, but he did not want the father. And he uses rebellion to get his way. 
Think about, let's just quickly talk about the ways that, that he, he dishonors and shames his father. First of all, in, the, in this context, a son would not receive his inheritance from his father until after his father had already died. So when this son makes this request, Father, give me my share of the estate, what he is saying is, Father, you're better off dead to me. I wish you were dead so that I could have my inheritance now. In fact, in the Greek, the phrase uh, immediately follows this request, so he divided his property between them. Uh, The phrase could literally be translated, so he divided his life. The Greek there is bios. He divided his life between his two sons. What 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 a horrible thing to do as this son Additionally, uh, identity for the Jewish people is so deeply tied to the land. And what did this younger son do with his inheritance? His inheritance is the land, his father's property. That's where wealth was secured. It was the land. And so apparently this, this son sells off his share of the land to liquidate those assets. He sells off the land and this is the land of prom- the promise, right? The promised land. This would have been unthinkable in that first century context. And then he leaves the land. He leaves the land of promise and heads for a distant country. Many scholars assume Jesus would be referring to the Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is pagan land, a distant pagan land, which, which is affirmed when we, we read that he, he ends up in a pig farm, right? Only a pagan land would have pig farms. This is despicable. The son arrives in this new country, this pagan country, where he can start over and live it up in wild living, and he does so, and he loses everything, squanders everything that he has just sold in wild living. The older brother's got some ideas of what that included. And it gets so bad that this younger son ends up working fields and feeding pigs, unclean animals. This would have been just despicable and horrifying to imagine in that first century uh, Jewish context for someone to be feeding pigs and then eating, begging, hoping to eat the pods that are being fed to the pigs and yet no one comes to help him. The son hits rock bottom. What Jesus is doing in the parable of the lost son is painting a picture of this younger son to, to exaggerate, to, 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 to show a, paint a picture of new levels of appalling and shameful. It is bad. And this parable exaggerates all those shameful and appalling features because this son wanted the father's things, but he did not want the father. Let's bring this back to our context. Does this sound at all familiar? What I want to do is um, borrow some of Tim Keller's language. You'll see self-discovery. By the way, Tim Keller uh, does a seven-week Bible study uh, on this parable called The Prodigal God. Has anyone gone through that study? Uh, This this seven-week study, we're doing it in one Sunday, okay, Seven-week study just totally opened up this parable for me years ago. It's it's remarkable. Uh, But he uses some language, self-discovery. Now, in the context, this younger son, this younger brother, hits rock bottom. And we can can think of countless examples of people hitting rock bottom in our context. But here's the thing. Usually when people hit rock bottom, they don't need help recognizing it. 
Neither did the son. He hits rock bottom. That's when he opens his eyes and wakes up and realizes what's happening. He understands that his life is an absolute mess and it can't get any worse. But there's a mindset, there's a mindset of this younger son that leads to this end of hitting rock bottom that I think is more prevalent and familiar and harder to recognize the dangers. And Tim Keller calls that impulse this longing for self-discovery. Now, I think this one hits a little closer to home in our modern context, right? You gotta go away to the big city. Gotta go, go off to college, maybe. Gotta get out from, from my parents' roof in order to, to figure out and discover who I truly am. I gotta live a little. I gotta experience the world. And let's be honest that this self-discovery is, is typically not like a, a sincere search for spiritual meaning, right? It's, it's not discovering who I am in Christ typically. When we talk about self-discovery, it's, it's seeking after the worldly pleasures. It's, it's experiencing all those things that I was shielded from when I lived under my parents' roof. It is a desire to experience the world and all that the world promises without the restraints of the rules and religion of my parents' home. What it really is, is it's a desire to be free, freedom described as free to do whatever I want. And if any of us have journeyed this road or, or someone we loved has journeyed this road and that's heartbreaking, it's, it's tragic, what we realize is that this impulse leads us toward slavery. This impulse to be free, to do whatever I want, actually leads to a kind of slavery. And when the younger son realizes where this freedom has led him, he opens his eyes and he returns home. And the parable continues and the parable continues and this focus gets shifted to the father. And we see this father's response I don't know, just even reading it this morning, I, I, I just was in there and I'm like, I'm getting choked up because you realize this, this is such a powerful picture of love. This father sees his son while he's still in the distance, cresting the hill. And what Jesus says is the father is filled with compassion. This is like a, a compassion in the gut and, and he sees his son filled with compassion and he runs toward him. Now again, first century context, you gotta understand, first century men do not run. To lift up your robe and to expose your legs and run would have been absolutely shameful. But this father is, is not that concerned about his own shame. He is more concerned and fixated on his son who has just crested that hill. He runs to his son. The Greek here, he falls on his neck and he kisses his son. And in this moment, he, he, he cuts the son off before he can finish his, his speech, right? Before he can say anything about making me like your hired servant, he, said, he calls his servants over. He says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on, and put the, this ring on his finger. This is a signet ring with the family seal. Put sandals on his feet. What this father does in this act is restores this son of his to sonship 
you are not a servant, you are my son. And then he throws a feast and he, he kills the fattened calf. A little more context, right? This is not like 21st century West Michigan. Like there's not a mire that you go and you can just pick out uh, one of many fattened calves, right? This is a, a young calf that's only a couple years old that is being saved for a special occasion. In fact, some scholars say that, that this represents the best day of the father's life. He has saved this fattened calf and this is the moment when he welcomes his son home and says this, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We need to capture the father's love is so absolutely astounding in this parable. In a powerful way, this first movement, Act 1, reminds us all of this truth. And maybe some need to hear that it is never too late, but also it's never too early to come home. For those tax collectors, for those sinners in verse 1 and 2, who are sitting at the feet of Jesus, they are right where they should be. At the feet of the Savior. Home. It doesn't matter what you've done. The grace of the Father covers all. The younger son. Then the story shifts. It keeps going. We get that first scene, right? It's like, oh, that's amazing. That's incredible. But the parable continues, and the focus shifts to the older son in verse 25. The older son is in the field. While he's in the field, he hears this party, music and dancing, and he's like, what's going on? He asks the servant what's going on. The servant explains to him exactly what's happened, that his brother has come home, and his father has killed the fattened calf, and there's a party happening other thing about this fattened calves like that's not like just a family meal you kill the fattened calf this is a lot of food that you don't waste and the whole village is invited like the father has restored the younger son not only to his family but to the village as a whole this is a communal like this is this is this is a different kind of context than we're used to but the older son the older brother finds out what's happening and and now you have the older son the older brother being a punk right so all those of you who are like, oh, those younger sons, yeah, the younger kids, older kids, you know, hey, okay, can you guess what I am? I'm a middle, yeah, okay. There's the joke. Didn't land all that well, but. We have the older brother who becomes angry and refused to go in. Now, so often I've read this parable and, and I can kind of relate to the older brother, right? What? Like, that's not fair, this guy, this guy, you're, this, this son of yours goes off, wastes everything that you've given. And now you're throwing him a party? Yeah, like that, that spoiled youngest brother, right? But here's the thing. What the older son actually says to his father reveals that there's more going on. His words reveal that he is, he is not a frustrated, righteous son. He's actually a self-righteous son who's also wanted his father's things, but he does not want the father. You see, the older son has obeyed. He's done all the right things. He's done all that was expected of him. 
But look at his response to his father. It shows what his motivation has been all along. It has not been out of love for his father. It's been out of a desire for his father's things. He says this, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. How does this older son see himself? Not as a son, as a servant, as a hired worker, as a slave. That's how he sees himself. He goes on, I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat much less a fattened calf, right? You've never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with the family and with the village, with my father. No, with my friends. (laughs) He doesn't want his father. He wants his father's things so that he can go celebrate with his friends right here at home. Using these terms like slaving, identify himself not as a son but as a slave, complaining about what he's never got. I've never gotten a goat party. That's kind of a different context, right? How many of them? Yeah, never mind. All his obedience was not out of love for his father. It wasn't out of love for his family. It was in order to get what he wants. And now he's angry and he refuses to come inside to this party and forces his father to go out to him. Again, that's shameful. See, just like the younger son, this son, this older son, wanted his father's things, but he did not want the father. He was just using obedience instead of rebellion to get after his father's things. Again, let's, let's bring it back to our current context. Does that sound familiar? Again, borrowing some of Tim Keller's language from Prodigal God, uh, self-discovery um, was the first example. He uses the language of moral conformity. Oh, that, one, that one hits. That one cuts deep. You do all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. Follow the rules in order that my life will go well. I don't know about you, but this one is convicting for me. I can so see myself in this older brother. I I long to do the right things. I want to say the right things. I want to be appropriately upset by the right things. But why? Why? I think we're all kind of mixed with motivation, but part of my motivation is, is so that others will think highly of me. Part of my motivation is so that I'll, I'll gain others' approval, that I might get ahead in life. Part of my motivation is, is to follow the morals of the community, the morals of the community which dictate my standing in the community. Now think about how complicated that gets in our context today. Because each of us have half dozen or so, at least, circles that we operate within. There's a half dozen or so communities and moral systems and moral codes and unwritten codes that we have to abide by, right? It's not just at church. It's not just in our religious communities. These moral codes are found in families, in our cities and neighborhoods, in our workplaces, And then you add on top of that this this recent phenomenon of a digital world, right? There's all these online communities that we find ourselves a part of. And they all have different moral codes and rules and unwritten rules. And, and, And so you work the system. You follow the unwritten rules to get ahead. You wear a different hat in each of these. And in the end, what happens? Slavery. We end up being enslaved to different moral standards in each community. In the end, it still leads to slavery. It still leads to death. It does not lead to life. 
all in an attempt to chase after the good gifts of God, but not actually longing for God himself. Does that sound familiar? But whether that sounds familiar or whether the previous one sounds familiar for your own lives, notice again the father's response to the older brother. Again, we see in the father's response a powerful picture of love. The father leaves the party. Now, that, now for us, that might seem like a small detail, but to leave a party would be shameful in the first century. You don't do that. And you especially don't do that to go out and plead and beg your older son to come to the party he should already be part of. That is, that is shameful. But the father leaves the party because again, he's less concerned about his own shame and honor in that context. He's more concerned about his son who is just as lost as his younger son. Verse 31, this is what he says to his son. He says, my son. He calls him his son. Names him as his son. And he goes on and reminds him that, that his presence is just as, if not more valuable than his things. Do you hear it? You are always with me, my son. And everything I have is yours. But you are always with me. The Father is urging him to come inside to enjoy the presence of the Father and all who are in that house celebrating. The Father knows that his son is missing out on what is best because his son has been in a lifelong pursuit of obedience and self-righteousness to get the things of his Father but has missed the presence of his Father that's been there the whole time. Again, the Father's love is absolutely astounding here in this second movement. And the Father's love here in this movement reminds us that we can stop playing the game. If this sounds familiar, you can stop playing the game of moral conformity. Stop trying to earn approval. Stop chasing after just the good gifts of God through your obedience and good works and instead embrace what is best to just be with the Father. Come home. And not just on the fringes doing what you're... Come fully home. Come inside, my son, my daughter. Come home. It's a word to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in verse 1 and 2, right? Because they're standing on the sidelines. They don't want to come to Jesus because what he is doing is inappropriate and unacceptable. They're keeping Jesus at a distance, resting in their own good works and intellect. And Jesus says, Come home. And then, and then in a rather a stunning move, the parable of the lost son just ends. We don't know what the older son does after the father's word to him. We don't know how the older son responds. If you were in a movie and the movie ended at this point, you'd be like, give me my money back. Like, what the heck, man? How does the movie end? I want resolution, right? 
But I think, again, we have an example of Jesus' brilliance. Because I believe Jesus purposefully leaves the parable unresolved because he's compelling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to respond. You are the older son. Are you going to stay on the outside because the tax collectors and sinners are here? Or are you going to come home? Jesus is absolutely brilliant. And yet there's one more thing, and this is where I want to end. There's a third son. Did you hear the, did you hear the, the third son in this parable? No, it's not the middle son. We're always left out, it's fine. We're never included, right? It's wah, wah, middle, middle child syndrome, right? There's a third son in this parable. It's the one telling the parable. The third son is Jesus Christ. See, Tim Keller in this study, Prodigal God, uses a little spiritual imagination to connect this parable beautifully to the gospel. You see, there is a difference between the first two parables that Jesus tells and this third. In the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, there is a sheep and there is a coin who are helplessly lost. They have no conscious awareness of their lostness. This is different than the son. And in both parables, there is someone. In the lost sheep, it is the shepherd. In the lost coin, it is this woman who go search tirelessly until they find that sheep, they find that coin, and bring both home. And what we notice in the parable of the lost son is that no one goes after the younger son. No one goes after the younger son. Which begs the question, was someone responsible to do so in that first century context? And Tim Keller suggests, and others have also suggested, that it was actually the older son. It was actually the older son who was to take responsibility for the family after receiving his inheritance when the father divided his property. It was the older son who, if he wasn't self-righteous and angry and upset, was supposed to go after the younger brother to reconcile the younger brother and his father. That was his role. And he didn't do it. But there's another son in this story, Jesus Christ, who's telling the story, who did do it. Not in the context of the parable. But Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, so loved the world, God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, identifies himself as what? A good shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven pursuing us because you know what? We're all unrighteous. We're all self-righteous sons and daughters. 
But Jesus Christ is the one and only righteous son who could reconcile us at great cost to himself. That party the father's throwing was at great cost to the older son. That's why he was so upset because that was his share of the property, right? Jesus Christ came at great cost to himself, gave his life on a cross, died so that we might be reconciled to our heavenly father. He came so that the lost might be found. Jesus Christ came so that the dead might be brought back to life. Jesus Christ came so that we might come home. And this is a gift Christ offers us today and a a gift that is secured for us for all eternity. Far better than all the good gifts of God, the presence of God himself through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And let's pray and thank God for that gift. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for for how, Lord Jesus, you taught in these stories, these parables that that invite us in to wrestle with with different truths, but Lord, parables that also reveal to us who you are. Lord, your word reveals to us your grace and your love. And Lord, for, for some of us, Lord, this morning, we hear the testimony of the younger son Lord, we think maybe about our own lives and our own rebellion. Lord, maybe we think about a child, a son or a daughter of ours who we see in some of these same patterns. Lord, we rest in the love of the Father. For some of us, Lord, we we hear the testimony of the older son and, and our hearts are maybe convicted or we think of someone we love and Lord, may you again direct us to the love of the Father. Lord, remind us, thank you for reminding us once again of the good news of the gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ gave his life so that we might have the promise of life in him both now and forevermore. This is the good news. This is where our hearts are drawn. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see towards grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears Relieved How precious did that grace appear 
Father loves you, wants you home, that Jesus wants you home. Life is more than the the things and the good gifts that the Father gives. Life is about being with Jesus Christ and God the Father. As you go from here, receive God's blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love, of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Go in peace. A voice like a whisper Breaking the silence You save as a treasure you look till you find it, you search to find me. What have I done to deserve love like this? 
like this. Like this.